At the turn of the century in America, thousands of people in big cities began attending acts of vaudeville. So these were comedians, singers, musicians, plate spinners, basically anyone who could uh, capture the attention of the audience for more than three minutes were a part of these acts. And there's an expression that we've come to recognize in our culture that was born out of this. And the expression is this, tough act to follow. Tough act to follow, right? It referred to a particularly good vaudeville act that made the next act look poor by comparison. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant and David's great, high, amazing prayer, you would think it's a tough act to follow. (laughs) I mean, where do we go after that? I mean, you talk about chapter 7 ending on a climax. I mean, it is explosive. And now you're thinking... Could there be anything next? But we find anything but a letdown in chapter 8. What we find in chapter 8 is we find the expansion of David's kingdom, which seems to be in response to what we just walked through in chapter 7. I'll talk more about why I say it seems to be. But in a summary approach, again, this chapter is so rich, it is so deep, I mean it, we could literally spend weeks in this chapter. It is that that rich and concentrated. I mean, we actually could. But what we want to do, though, is we'll take a summary approach, and we want to identify some critical principles for us as it relates to expanding the spiritual kingdom of God today. What are some things that we can glean? What are some things that we can observe to, to help us expand, to have this kind of expansion, the kind of expansion that we're about to see, how can we replicate that spiritually before the trump sounds and we are raptured out of here? So what's in view when we talk about expanding the spiritual kingdom of God? What we're talking about is we're talking about winning people to Jesus Christ, making disciples of them, and replicating that all around the world. When we talk about expanding the kingdom, when we talk about kingdom expansion spiritually, that is what we have in view. This is what we're talking about. So we begin in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 8. And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, there are a number of credible scholars who believe that what we are looking at here in terms of some of the battles that are recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 8 actually occurred before 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that some of these battles also took place after what we read in chapters 10 through 12. And I can just tell you from looking into this, you can really make a strong argument for that. I really can see it. But here's the thing that gives me pause with respect to being definitive about that. Are the opening words of verse 1. And after this. After what? (laughs) Uh, That would be uh, indicative to me of what we just saw in chapter 7. 
I mean, it's, I don't think it takes a scholar to kind of do that hermeneutic math, if you would. I think it's pretty basic. But again, once you delve into this and you get into chapter 10, you can see how some are making the argument. One of the proof texts for the argument of, of, this, of this taking place before chapter 7 is chapter 7, verse 1, begins with God telling us that he had given David rest from all his enemies round about. Right. But again, I just I'm just I'm a simple guy, so I'm going to kind of lean toward how the chapter begins in verse eight chronologically and just say, hey, I think it follows what we have just walked through uh, here in in, uh, chapter seven. Either way, it doesn't diminish what we're about to look at and what I believe God would have us to see and take away spiritually for us today. But from the earliest days of Israel being in the promised land, the land of Canaan, the Philistines were a problem. And that continued throughout the book of 1 Samuel. You see that. And then, of course, here we saw in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel that after the Philistines got word that Israel had appointed David king over all of Israel, they went on the attack twice. And so they are simply doing what they've always done in terms of of, of being a, a thorn in the side of God's people. So it would seem very fitting, very natural, that after this great experience in chapter 7, after getting this great promise from God, that you find David as he's expanding his kingdom, dealing with the Philistines. But this brings us to make our first key point this morning, which is this, if we are going to expand the kingdom of God today, we must overcome the world. We must overcome the world. We must. The Bible tells us that David smote and subdued the Philistines. That word subdue means to vanquish or overcome. This is what David did. David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. Methag Amma in 1 Chronicles chapter 18 verse 1 is referred to as Gath, which was, which was the chief city amongst five of the major cities in Philistia. And so David took it. He overcame those worldly antagonistic people. He overcame them. He subdued them and expanded the kingdom southwest of Jerusalem. Now, this audience is not going to be ignorant of the fact that we have overcome the world. And the reason that we have overcome the world is because of what we read in John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Please, I want to make sure you you don't gloss over something that we just read. Jesus says, and this is a guarantee, this is a promise. He says, in the world ye shall have tribulation. This is a fact. This is why as a believer in Jesus Christ, you should never be stunned by the onslaught that comes against you from the world. Jesus told you this. You're going to have tribulation in the world. The world is against you. It's not for you. 
So don't be surprised at injustice. Don't be surprised at unrighteousness. Don't be surprised at persecution. Jesus told us this, right? But because of our position in Christ, we have overcome the world, right? We have. 1 John 5, 4 tells us, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. If you have been born again, if you are blood washed, if you are saved, positionally speaking, you have overcome the world. You have defeated it. In Christ, you have. But unless we think and live like that practically, we will not expand the kingdom of God as a church or as a fellowship. Unless you have reckoned that, unless you have counted that to be true, we're not going to take territory for the Lord. So when we talk about overcoming the world, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page by what we mean when we say this practically. Overcoming the world means that we do not allow worldliness to interfere with God's kingdom agenda. We don't allow worldliness of any sort to interfere with God's kingdom agenda in our lives. And worldliness, it has a myriad of faces, does it not? It does. Business, recreation, politics, relationships, entertainment, etc., etc. We allow these things to creep into our lives and it distracts us from God's business. It keeps us from being about His business of expanding the spiritual kingdom of God. It hinders us from being focused on the gospel, being focused on discipleship, being focused on missions, living the Great Commission. To overcome the world, we cannot allow those things to distract us from the mission. Verse 2, And he smote Moab, and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. So the expansion now is going southeast of Jerusalem. The Moabites had an interesting history with Israel because they were actually related. The Moabites were born out of incestuous, incestuous sorry, relations between Lot and his oldest daughter. You get that data in Genesis 19 and verse 37. But Lot, as we know, was the nephew of Abraham. So they were related to the Jewish people. David's great-grandmother, Ruth, as you know, was a Moabitess. And so this is family that we're talking about. Ruth also is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But Moab hired a false prophet named Balaam in Numbers 22 to do what? To curse Israel. 
God would not allow that to happen, and then in the end, ended up cursing Moab. Balaam um, was, was, was essentially a soothsayer. <laughs> um, the, the Moabite people were threatened by Israel's growth and development and progression and was trying to essentially destroy them. So David ordered that Moab be divided into two divisions. Those on one side would, would be put to death and those on the other side would be spared. It's very interesting. It was actually fairly common historically during that time. But I would suspect that one of the reasons that David did not completely annihilate them, I don't know fully why, but I do believe one of the reasons why that he didn't wipe them out completely was because of the family reality. Obviously, we talked about that. But also in the book of 1 Samuel, forgive me, in the book of 1 Samuel, if you remember, the Moabite people were actually generous and gracious to David in terms of putting up his parents while he was on the run from Saul. So I would imagine that factored into his decision of not wiping them out completely. But there is a phrase in verse 2 that gives us our next point, put to death. Very critical. If we are going to expand the kingdom of God today, we must also overcome our weaknesses. And I'm talking about the weaknesses of the flesh. We must do that. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 tells us, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, put to death that henceforth we should not serve sin. Paul said, notice in this verse, knowing this, in other words, this is certain. This is true. Knowing this, like you've got to know this. You have to know the reality of the old man. He died 2,000 years ago at Calvary. He's been put to death that the body of sin might be destroyed. So that what? So that we don't serve sin anymore. Before Christ, you had no choice but to serve sin. After Christ, you have a choice now. You don't have to be the servant of sin. So, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, reckon this. So, please hear this. Servants of sin cannot expand the kingdom of God. They can't. The only thing that a servant of sin can do is advance the kingdom of Satan. A servant of sin cannot and will not expand the kingdom of God. A servant of sin is not going to win people to Christ. A servant of sin is not going to make disciples. A servant of sin is not going to touch the world, missions, with the gospel of Christ. A servant of sin cannot do that. 
as a fellowship, we are trusting God to use us to add people to this flock, right? Praise the Lord. Listen, that cannot happen. And that will not happen apart from all of us putting some things to death in our lives. There is a principle in Scripture. Something must die for something else to live. Something must die for something else to live. God gives us this early on in the book of Genesis. God took Adam and God put him to sleep, put him to death. And what came out of that? Life. Eve. A picture of the church she is. Well, how did we get life? Jesus had to die. I mean, that principle is all throughout God's Word. If we're going to be serious about this, we can't serve sin and expect God to honor our faith position. There are some things that have to be put to death. All right, verse 3, I told you a summary. This is, you talk about, this is one of the hardest messages I've ever prepared. Because I'm like, God, I feel like I'm... But it's like, it's either this or we're going to take six weeks. And I've seen some of the looks on your faces like, are we really in this chapter again? Yeah. I just struggle to organize my thoughts. I'm trying. So, all right, verse three. David smote also Hadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen and 20,000 footmen. We're going to come back to the math here or these numbers a little bit later uh, in our study of 2 Samuel. But I just want to uh, make a mental note right now. And David huffed all the chariot horses, but reserved of them for an hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor or aid Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians two and twenty thousand men. Then David put garrisons or troops in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Beta, and from Beeroth-ai, cities of Hadezer, King David took exceeding much brass. Now, when it says that David huffed the horses, what he did was he essentially made them useless. So I'll make a side note here about this. Because this is actually, this will be very critical later. And the reason that he did that was because he was mindful of God's instructions in Deuteronomy 17 to kings in that they were not to multiply horses unto themselves. So he's mindful of this, which is very interesting because later on in the book of 2 Samuel, he's going to have a completely change of heart and it's going to be a fatal mistake. 
I'll, I'll just tell you, um, when you think about one of David's greatest failures, most people rush to chapter 11 regarding the sin with Bathsheba. I'm telling you, that was just a warm-up uh, compared to where he was headed later on after that. Very interesting. But the expansion now is going very north as David expanded the kingdom to the Euphrates River. One of the reasons that Again, I'm inclined to attach this chapter uh, chronologically to to have it follow chapter 7 is because of the Davidic covenant, which was rooted in the covenant that God made with Abraham. And that shows up right here because David clearly knew that. He did. So expanding the kingdom as far north as he did to the river Euphrates was very consistent with what God promised Abraham. In Genesis 15, 18, the Bible says this, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So David now is expanding the kingdom that far. I mean, this is very far north of Jerusalem, if you look at a map. So again, he's clearly mindful of the land promise or the land grant that God gave Abram or Abraham. And he is responding with respect to that. But at the time of this expansion, Zobah was part of the Aramean kingdom, which was very powerful. Very powerful. The Syrians were a part of that kingdom and came to the aid of Hadezer, king of Zobah, but they were, as you read, defeated soundly. I mean, this chapter, it, it, it really, as you read through it, it reminds me of the book of Joshua where Israel is just getting it done. I mean, they are destroying folks. I mean, God is blessing and this thing is happening. They are entering the land and, and, and not to be improper, but we would say uh, kicking butt and taking names. Uh, this is what's happening here in chapter 8. And when you consider David as a type of Christ defeating a confederacy of nations, doctrinally speaking, that ought to get your attention in terms of what this is pointing to because in the Great Tribulation, there will be a ten-nation confederacy ruled by the Antichrist that is going to wage war with the Jewish people and Christ at His second coming. And so you see that. So if we are going to expand the kingdom of God today, we must also overcome wickedness. We must overcome wickedness. We understand from 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we've overcome the wicked one, have we not? That is true. Again, in Christ, that is true of us positionally. But here's the practical reality right now. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 
that's the score. Spiritually, that's the score. The score is, yes, in Christ, you have overcome the wicked one. So if you've overcome the wicked one, then guess what? You've overcome spiritual wickedness in high places. This is true. Positionally. But in practice, you have to actualize that. In practice, you have to reckon that to be true and make that a reality. Listen, we are in battle with spiritual wickedness in high places. But I need you to hear me. We're not in battle with Republicans and Democrats. We're not in battle with our spouses. We're not in battle with believers in Jesus Christ. That's not who we are trying to overcome. If you have made those things your battle, guess what? I'm here to tell you, you are being overcome. You're being overcome. You're fighting with the wrong, you've identified the wrong enemy. Very simply, we overcome spiritual wickedness in high places by walking in the Spirit. That's how we do it. This is a spiritual war. The weapons of our warfare, the Bible tells us, they're not carnal. So we overcome spiritual wickedness in high places by walking in the Spirit of God. A carnally minded people cannot and will not expand the spiritual kingdom of God. They'll be like the church at Corinth. They'll gather and they'll just fight and war constantly. And be distracted with all the things of the world. Let me just remind you. You're hearing more talk about COVID in the news. We have another campaign that's coming. Stay focused. Your focus is to expand the spiritual kingdom of God. Your focus is not to make Republicans or Democrats. Your focus is not to make sure that everybody knows what you think about COVID. We are not making those kinds of disciples. No matter who wins this upcoming election, my Bible tells me in the book of Ezra chapter 1 that my God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, the man who ruled the most powerful nation on earth at that time. And God stirred up his spirit 
to issue a proclamation and put it in writing to send his people back from the exile to rebuild the temple, to do his will. Cyrus says that he charged me to build him a house. Cyrus says he is the God. My Bible tells me in Proverbs 21 verse 1 that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So I don't have to get upset. I don't have to lose a second of sleep depending on who wins this upcoming election. Because I know ultimately who's in charge. So stay focused. Don't take the bait. Verse 9. When Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadadezer, then Toai sent Joram, his son unto King David, to salute him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him. For Hadadezer had wars with Toai, and Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued, of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines and of Amalek. So more nations here in the lineup and of the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David took all the vessels that he had uh, acquired in battle, and as you keep reading, you realize that all these things would be used by Solomon in the building of the temple. What this tells us very clearly, and we need to hear this and we need to embrace this, is this whole expansion business that David was doing with respect to the kingdom was all about God's glory, not his. What we're trusting God for in life fellowship is about God's glory, not ours. Certainly not mine. This is all about the glory of God. Trusting the Lord to use us to lead people to him, man, that can't be about us. But in defeating all the host of Hadadezer, David achieved peace with Toai, king of Hamath. So listen, to expand God's kingdom today, we must also be, hang with me, oddly winsome. David won the king of Hamath. He won him. I'm certain, and please, I'm going to ask you, maybe you can fill me in um, after class. But I'm, I, at this point, I really am convinced. I'm convinced that I have missed a verse. I have missed maybe a chapter. Maybe when I was in the Shepherd School of Ministry, this was covered, and I was just sleepy that morning, and I just, it went over my head. Or I'm just in the slow lane spiritually. That's definitely true. I know I've missed, I've missed this because I have been exposed to a number of people over the years who have expressed very clearly 
that to believe what we believe, to believe what we believe about the Bible, that we have the very words of God, and to hold to the doctrines that we hold to means that you must wear on your sleeves everything and everyone that you are against. Like, people need to know what you hate. They need to know what you're angry about. They need to know what acts you're grinding. They need to know that you are a King James only carrying believer and you are mad about it. I'm sure there's a verse that I missed. There's got to be. And and what, what is the fruit of that? Let me tell you what the fruit of that is right now as we sit here in this country. There are very few King James only churches that remain. They're dwindling in attendance. And they are comprised of 21st century scribes and Pharisees who are self-righteous, hyper-critical of others, and they haven't smiled in years. They're miserable. They're mad. And that's how it's got to, that's how it should be. And here's what's, here's what's interesting. They, and again, I'm sure there's a verse that once I read it, this will all click and it will make sense. But until I read that verse, I, I, I notice like that they can't seem to make the connection between that and their parking lots that are massively empty. Sunday after Sunday. And the pews that it's just plenty of room. Because we know typically on a Sunday there is about 20 of us that are going to be here. It's just what it is. This is why I titled this point Oddly Winsome. Because it is unusual for people like us, doctrinally, to be winsome. We're not typically winsome people. I had a student in Foundations 2 a couple years ago. I've I've shared this with you, but for some of you, this will be new. If you're in Foundations 2, Foundations 3, at some point, you're going to read a book it's required reading. It's called a more sure word. And what we want to do there is we want to we want to give you the proper equipping to make sure that you understand why we hold to a King James Bible. And there was a student in Ohio, and so they had to read this book. And back then they had to write a paper. I changed that because when I realized I had to read sixty papers, I was like, we're not writing papers anymore. <laughs> 
I'm like, yeah, sounds good to me. I read a paragraph. I think you got it. <laughs> After about the 20th page, I'm like, Lori, where are you? Like, Lori, can you read these papers? If anything sounds wacky, let me know. No, I'm kidding. I did look at every one, but there was one in particular that I remember. It was a, a man in Ohio, and in his paper, here's what he said. He said, before this book, I was not a King James-only believer. And what he said was, he goes, the reason for that was it wasn't because of, of, of the manuscript evidence or any of that. It was because of the people that I dealt with who were King James only. It turned me off. Because I said to myself, if that's who I have to be to hold that position, I'll keep my NIV. Well, he read the book and he goes, now after reading the book, I totally get it. <laughs> and I am King James only. But I will not be a King James only guy like that. Guys, we can be downright, I mean, full of arrogance because I'm right. So because I'm right and you're not, because your Bible and your doctrine are inferior to mine, I get to treat you like trash. This is in our history. And it's ugly. Would you consider this biblically? Acts 2, 46, 47. And they, the church, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. How about Luke 2 and verse 52? And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I am not advocating compromise. And I do understand that being winsome does not mean that we can win and will win everyone. I get that. But I do need us to get this. To win people to Christ, we must be winsome. <laughs> if we're going to win people to Jesus Christ, we have to be winsome. Folks, listen, for people at our age and stage of life, I think you would agree with this, people at our age and stage of life, for them to hear, just to even hear and consider the spiritual terms of the gospel, they have to actually like us. <laughs> would you agree with that? How serious are you going to listen to someone that you don't like? <laughs> I don't care how right they are. What adult is going to hear the gospel from someone they perceive to be self-righteous, hypercritical, and mad? 
what can you offer me? (laughs) I feel bad for you. This thing must be really tough, this church thing that you do. Looks terrible from the looks of you. As Sam would say, are you tracking with me? Yeah. Okay. Verse 13 and 14. And David got him a name when he returned from, from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants, and the Lord perceived and the, and the Lord preserved, sorry, David whithersoever he went. Now, we're going to circle back to verses 15 and 18 a little later as well. But the Valley of Salt would have been at the south end of the Dead Sea in the same area where Sodom and Gomorrah once were. But this chapter has recorded the conquering of great land, the defeat of thousands of, of soldiers, You've seen David acquire uh, vessels of gold and brass and silver. You see kingdoms paying tribute to him. David getting a name was consistent with what God said in chapter 7, verse 9, when he said, I've made your name great. And so through this great victory, that was the fruit of that. But the answer, the answer for chapter 8, this, I mean, it's great victory. Why did it happen? How did it happen? The answer is staring us in the face as we've read through this in verses 6 and 14. Look at it at the end of both. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. Verses 6 and 14. That's why. It wasn't because David was the man. It was because God is God. So to expand the spiritual kingdom of God, we must also recognize our need for the omnipotence in the work. We need that. Our need for the omnipotence in the work. God is that. All-powerful. Listen, the only person to be impressed with in this chapter is God. The only person to be impressed with in this church is God. Sam did a great job Tuesday night. If you missed that, you'll want to catch up on that. It was fantastic. But he did a great job of calling MBT to stay in a place of humility. What has and is happening here is not because of any man. It is because of our omnipotent great God. That's why. This is why we took time to pray together this morning. Because what is ahead of us, what we're trusting God for, collectively at our best, we can't even lead one person to Christ. We're desperate. We are. Because apart from the power of God, we cannot win people to Christ. 
especially in this country. You cannot win adults to Christ in this country apart from the power of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that belief. The Word of God does the work. What did Paul say in Romans 1.16? What is the gospel? It is the what? The power of God. Two big problems we have with evangelism are thinking too much about how to do it and placing too much attention on our personal performance. Those are two of the biggest problems I believe we have when it comes to evangelism. How do I do it? Can I do it? Did I say it just right? Do I know enough Bible? What? All of that. And here's what that leads to. That leads to us coming to a gridlocked place where there is no movement of the gospel. Because until I know exactly how I should do it, and until I'm very comfortable with my performance in doing it, I just won't do it. And people will stay in this place for years. Well, should, is, it, is, it, is it hit the streets? Is, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it relational evangelism? Is it, is, it, is it this? Is it that? Yes. It's all of the above. It's being submitted to the Holy Spirit of God to speak when the Lord clearly gives you a window to do so, whatever that looks like. Is it FOI? Yes. Is it Laramie? For sure. Is it Vietnam? Yeah. Is it your neighbor? Yes. So, what I want to do this morning is I want to give you some time, a few minutes, five minutes to be exact. We've got some, some questions I want you to work through. These would have been on your handout. Um, again, thank you for being patient. Um, the printer is just down today, and that happens. Hey, Paul didn't have PowerPoint. Amen. Didn't have any handouts. I think we'll be all right. Okay. But would you take some time and just get with the Lord? This is not a group thing. This is just you personally, privately. And then in about five minutes, Mark will come and close us out in prayer. But, but would you, this is your time to process what we've looked at and uh, for you to do whatever business you need to do with the Lord.